Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the Mentor Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Jerry Novak. Jerry is a clinical psychologist, and he was a former officer in the United States Air Force as a clinical psychologist as well, and has a really interesting story. Grew up in a rough household, was never really an all-star student, ended up becoming a personal trainer out, out of school, pursued his bachelor's degree in marketing, but was never really super passionate about it, but then ultimately found some passion in psychology, and then ultimately went on to become a clinical psychologist, and has helped many, many people, is a lifelong martial artist, and in this episode, we talk about topics such as PTSD and first responders. We talk about the prevalence of anxiety in today's society and how technology contributes to that, some practical ways to battle stress and anxiety, and just the antidote or recipe for happiness in everyday life. So without further ado, this is episode eight of the Mentor Podcast. All right, everyone, this is episode eight of the Mentor Podcast. Let me double check. Yep, episode eight. And today we have Dr. Jerry Novak. And before we get started with the questions, how about you just tell us your story? Hey, thank you, John. Yep. So it's going to be an interesting podcast episode because they're switching platforms a little bit now and interviewing people who need a mentor. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so my story, oh boy. Um, I was born and raised in New Jersey, um, grew up in the 80s, which I love, love mm -hmm. everything about the 80s. Um, had, you know, I don't know, maybe what a lot of people would call a difficult childhood. Um, obviously, people have had it way worse, but when I was, you know, when I was about four, um, my mom got sick. She died when I was seven. Mm. Um, there was a lot of violence in my house toward me. Um, we moved a lot in 12 years of grade school. I was in nine different schools. Wow. Yeah. I never really had friends. Like I have no childhood friends at all. Like nobody from my childhood. Just because thing. of moving around so mm -hmm. much. Okay. Yeah. And we weren't really permitted to keep in touch. Yeah. Like we weren't, I remember once I had a friend, I guess I was in middle school and we moved and I wanted to keep in touch with him. And you know, I was told no way. Like, mm. yeah. So, um, so, you know, grew up, I went to college uh, down in southern New Jersey. I was not much of a student. I wasn't a great student in high school or middle school either. Um, but I sort of, like, blossomed socially. Mm. Um, I think just because of my mom's death when I was young, the violence in the house, and always being the new kid, I was socially awkward. And so in college, I sort of learned to be more social. <clears throat> um I majored, I had a degree in marketing, public relations, mm. my bachelor's degree. I worked for, I, I don't even know if it was a full year in that field. It just wasn't for me. And so I quit. I ended up becoming a personal trainer mm. and I did really well as a personal trainer. I um, uh, was very busy. I made good money. 
I made my own schedule. I was um, I worked for New York Sports Club, which is a pretty big company. Okay. I was a master level trainer hmm. with New York Sports Club. I did that for about fifteen years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I got I got to a point. There was me, and there was one other trainer in the gym who were sort of the top guys. Mm-hmm. And so what they would do in the gym is basically the clients who were in need of real knowledge. So either the elite athletes, the D1 competitors, a couple of Olympians, or um, people who are really frail, like, you know, very elderly or severely obese would come to me or this guy, Mm -hmm. you know. And so we had to be able to get results. Um, So I got to a point where I had a couple of clients who I thought maybe, maybe the hurdle for them wasn't so much anything physical, but sort of family dynamics or emotional things in the way of their performance. Mm. And I hated school. You know, I was very happy when I got done with college. I never wanted to go back. But I really wanted to learn to help them. So I started taking two courses, one in family dynamics, one in like intro to counseling. Mm. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I was just good at school, got straight A's, you know. Was it because you're interested in it? I think it was partially that. I think it was partially that it was 10 years later and I had grown up a bit. Mm -hmm. And I think it was partially that I learned to study as a personal trainer, but I didn't think of it as studying, right? It was just work. But I really wanted to help my clients. So I would really attack these extra certifications, these um, extra education kinds of credits, you know, going to workshops and figuring things out. Mm -hmm. And so I learned good study habits without realizing it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was a combination of those three things. Anyway, it was really fun to be like the smart kid in class for the first time. You know, mm-hmm. people wanted me in their study groups and such. Right. And so I took two more classes and I took two more classes and two more. And in six years, I had a master's degree. So, um, and what's your master's degree in? Counselor education. So okay. counseling. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And so I was at that time working still as a personal trainer, but part time as a counselor. Mm. Nope, other way around. Full-time as a counselor, part-time as okay, a personal gotcha. trainer. Yep. And I thought, man, if anybody on planet Earth should not be a doctor, it's probably me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let me apply and just see what happens, yeah. right? Like just just an experiment. Mm-hmm. And so I applied to a few schools and I was offered a few interviews and it became like a game of chicken. I was like, well, if you're going to invite me, I'm going to show up, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I ended up getting accepted to a couple of programs and went to this uh, great program in Indiana and ended up with a, uh, a PhD in psychology. Hmm. Um, partway through, I received a scholarship from the Air Force. So, well, what's funny is, so when I started my doc program, I really wasn't going to be a psychologist. I was going to get a PhD in psychology, go back home to New Jersey and be a personal trainer. Oh, was, really? Yeah, that was my plan. So you, you were doing the education piece just because you were genuinely interested in it. You didn't actually see it as like a means to an end. Uh, it was partially because I was genuinely interested in it. And there was also a personal piece. I was told my whole life that I was stupid. Hmm. I I was not a good student and I was told I was dumb Hmm. and I believed it. And so I just thought it was a really cool accomplishment. You want to prove something to yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, so I was just very, I loved being a personal trainer. I was very happy to go home and do that again with my PhD in psychology. Um, but money got tight as it does for graduate students. And I applied for a scholarship from the air force and I got, and I was one of 12 people or something who got the scholarship. And so that paid for my education 
And after school, I ended up commissioning as an officer in the Air Force, uh, spent seven years-ish as an Air Force psychologist. Um, you know, I was a, a element lead. I spent a little bit of time as a, uh, as a flight commander, mm. uh, got out of the Air Force, worked in the civilian world for a little while, and uh, just recently had some life changes, so I'm not really working as a psychologist right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe not anymore. We'll see. Um, and all this time, uh, just a lifelong music lover and uh, musician, sort of, and uh, martial artist. Nice. That's been my life. Yeah. So the, the Air Force piece, did you ever envision yourself being in the military, or was it just kind of, it was like, you know, it was just natural to go that route because they offered you a scholarship. So also a funny story, but, um, so when I was a kid, we used to go to this, I think it was a dentist if I remember correctly. And there was a Marine recruiter right next door. And you know, this was a time of like Rambo movies and mm -hmm. stuff. And so I go in there and see the pictures of all the Marines and their old school fatigues, right? Like old school camo, Yeah, you know, crawling through mud and stuff. And these recruiters would talk to me. And I mean, I was 12 or something, mm -hmm. but I just loved it. My dad had a habit of telling me all the time when he was angry at me, which was more or less all the time, <clears throat> that I should join the army because they'd make a man of me. Hmm. So when I finished high school, I had no interest whatsoever in going to more school. So I told him I wanted to join the army. And he was like, the hell you will. You're going to college. <laughs> so funny, I was, huh? Yeah, I was a little confused. Mixed messages. Yeah, I was a little confused <laughs> by that. And so, um, you know, I think by that time I realized that Marines, you know, I have a ton of respect for the Marines. I mm -hmm. think they're awesome. And most of the Marines I've known in my life are super cool people. But I think at that point I, I realized, like, basically you're cannon fodder, mm -hmm. right? Like you're – and. So, and I also thought, I was sure my parents would object to the Marines. I thought they might sign off on the army because my dad told me a thousand times, yeah. like, join the army. They'll yeah. make a man of you. So I went to college and I really didn't want to study marketing. I was started off studying music. I was a music major and I got bullied a little bit by my folks into changing the major into marketing. So, excuse me, I really did not want to work in marketing. So after college, I thought, I love the ocean. I love ships. I love being out on the ocean. I thought I'd go to naval officer school uh -huh. with my degree and go to the Navy. And my dad was like, the f hell you'll go to the Navy. Sorry, I don't want to swear. All no, that. you're fine. Okay. This, I, I, I put explicit on every single oh, episode. Okay. So you're good. Good. Because I use fuck yeah. like it's a comma. No, it's fine. Okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so <laughs> My daughter's asleep. We're good. Yeah. good. Okay. <laughs> so he, my dad was like, you are not going in the Navy. Go get a job in marketing. And so... Um, so it had come up and been squashed a few times. Um, and I had never really considered the air force. Um, and so when this scholarship came up out of the blue, like, I don't even know how I got an email from a medical services recruiter in Ohio asking me if I would be interested in applying. He told me there'd be about 500 applicants. They had about 12 scholarships to give out and it would just cover everything. And, um, and at this point, you know, I went, uh, I took a lot of time off. So um, the cutoff to commission into the Air Force, the cutoff age is 40. I finished my PhD and commissioned at 39. Wow. So I was like, this is m really my last chance yeah, if yeah. I'm going to do it. Yep. And so I decided, I decided I would rather have the experience than not have the experience. Yeah. And so yeah. I chose to do it. So before we get into the formal questions, yeah. um, one of the, the <clears> reoccurring <throat> themes that I'm kind of hearing in your story is that 
at least in your early years, especially when you were 18 and then moved out of the house, your dad's opinion, your parents' yeah. opinion really kind of influenced what you did. Yes. At what age did you feel like you kind of broke away from that? Wasn't until my late twenties. Hmm. Um, there's a funny dynamic. I mean, I love my family and I don't want to sound like I don't, I do, but there was a lot of violence mm -hmm. in my house. So there was a lot of like those dynamics don't just change cause you turn 18. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if anger tempers start to rise, you just give in to keep the peace. Yeah. And so there was a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is the real pattern is, um, when I made, did make decisions for myself throughout the course of my life, I was typically very happy with them. Um, when I made decisions based on what my folks wanted, as you might guess, I was less happy. Mm -hmm. So like they were terribly ashamed of me as a personal trainer. They mm. hated that I really? was a personal trainer. Yeah. I did it for 15 years. And for the whole 15 years, my dad would say, I can't wait till you outgrow this phase. I can't wait till you outgrow this phase. I loved it. I still love it. I am still a certified personal trainer. Yeah. And we go back to work in a gym in a minute. Right. Um, but my dad still tells me, like, I left personal training as a full-time job in 2008 to pursue doctoral school. He still tells me, I'm so glad you're over that personal training wow. you know, phase. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. But I didn't really like marketing. Mm -hmm. Um even psychology, which I did, I think, part to prove something to myself, but part to impress them. Um, there's things I absolutely love about it, but I don't love it anywhere near as much as I did personal training. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting to hear, you know, kind of how family <clears throat> dynamics influence people's decisions, especially mm -hmm. in adulthood. Yeah. And that's something that, like, my wife and I have, have had to work through together because my environment and you you know you and I talked about this mm -hmm. when I was on your podcast when I was a teenager I had such a long leash yeah. and and my parents never really said like we want you to do this mm -hmm. or we are we you know we don't want you to do this or we're ashamed yeah. that you did this like my leash was just so long that when I turned 18 I pers I viewed myself as an adult who yeah. could like make my own decisions and like I didn't really not to say I didn't care what my parents yeah. thought but I just felt like okay I could pave my own path yeah. My wife grew up in a like a, a very close knit family, yeah. um, very devout Christian family, pastor's family, and I, I don't think I mean her parents would never never said like you should do or you shouldn't do this. But what I did notice that was a, kind of a, a roadblock for us early on in our relationship was she would always go seek not a maybe not approval, but sometimes at least uh, she would maybe well she would seek a pre approval at times, but at least guidance yeah. right from her mm -hmm. parents. And it probably wasn't until she was in her mid twenties yeah. that she really stopped doing that, you yeah. know? And I remember when we got married, it was kind of like, all right, this is like the line in the sand. Like we're our own family unit now. Like if we want to yeah. seek out your parents for advice, that's great. But at the same time, like we make our own decisions. This is our mm -hmm. life to pave. So yeah. it's, it's unfortunate when, you know, you hear stories about people who are kind of like under the thumb of their parents whether it's deliberate or not deliberate, malicious or not malicious, just, right. you know, at some point breaking away from that is yeah. like one of the most freeing things yeah. I think for yeah. adults, you know? So I can tell you, I was about 26 years old and the first time, so I decided, um, I had been living in a place and I needed to move or whatever. And I went looking at apartments and I decided on an apartment and it was maybe the first real decision 
I had ever made without consulting at least my dad. Mm-hmm. And typically if my dad said, no, nah, I don't think that's a good place to live, I'd scrap, scrap it. it. Right. Yeah. And so this was the first time I made the decision, signed the lease, paid first and last month's rent, moved my stuff in without him even knowing. And I, I don't think I slept at all. I was up all <laughs> night. Yeah. Like, oh my God, like, what's he going to do when he finds out what's going to happen when they like, what if they don't like this place? What if, wow. was he going to find out that I just made the decision without asking? Mm-hmm. Like, and I was like 26 years old. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, and my wife's not, not that my wife is the exact same, right. but I remember like even I, I bought my first house when I was 21. I was hired <laughs> by the fire department when I was 20. Wow. So like I grew up yeah. very fast and yeah. made a lot of those independent decisions by myself. But when my wife and I got married, you know, just making decisions like that, like, okay, where are we going to live? Like, what are we going to do? Mm. What are our financial decisions? I always was kind of like, even if, if even, even if I was wrong, right. I was like, I'm sure of myself. Yeah. And, and Becca was very much like, okay, let me consult with my parents. Yeah. So it's just two totally different trains yeah. of thought. And I think it's just the environment that you grow up sure. in. Yeah. You know? It took and, me a long time to get to the point now where I'm okay making a decision because if it does go sideways, I'm confident that I can fix it. Right. But it took me a long time to get right. to that point. Yeah, right. and I think a lot of people do. You yeah. know, I'm not even trying to per, per, you know paint that as a bad thing. Right. I think it's just a natural progression sure. for yeah. some people. You know. Yep. Okay, let's get into the formal questions. Sure. So, first things first. What is the role of a clinical psychologist? Because I think, like you know, yep. you hear psychiatrist, psychologist, yep. therapist, counselor. Mm-hmm. So, what is the role of a clinical psychologist? Okay. So, there's even more to um, the variety. So. When you talk about psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist, those are different, slightly different with a little bit of overlap career fields. So a psychiatrist is an MD, medical doctor, Mm. who um, prescribes meds, basically. They can do some therapy, some talk therapy, but typically they don't because of the way the insurance works and the payment. So they work, you know, whereas a therapist might um, book out 30-minute or hour-long appointments, most psychiatrists book out 15-minute appointments. They come in, see how your symptoms are doing. If your meds are good, they refill you. If not, they make adjustments, and you're on your way. Mm-hmm. Um, they go through medical school and residency and all that. Psychologist, and here's where I say there's a little more to it, because clinical psychologist is not the only form. In fact, I so while I, I did work as a clinical psychologist through my whole career, my training is as a counseling psychologist. Hmm. And then there's areas like what they call IO psychologist, which is industrial organizational psychologist. There's um, educational psychologist. So there's, there's many different types. But we are doctors in the sense that we have either a PhD or what they call a PsyD, mm-hmm. which is a psychology doctorate. Um, and we do not, well, there are, places where with extra education you can prescribe meds, but typically psychologists with a PhD don't prescribe meds. Um, We tend to do therapy, psychotherapy with folks. But the other thing that, uh, the other things that we do, we teach, right? With a doctorate, you can teach. Um, And we conduct research. What separates us from other therapists is that we're trained in testing and assessment. Hmm. So, um, for example, uh, when I was in the military, I would frequently conduct um, competency to stand trial evaluations. Hmm. So somebody got in trouble, they're going to court martial, you have a right 
in the judicial system to understand your charges, to understand the court process, to, right? And if you don't understand them, then you can't participate in the trial. So mm -hmm. they would send folks to me and I would use a combination of psychological testing and clinical interview skills to flesh out whether or not they were competent to stand trial. Mm. Um, somebody who has, let's say, uh, a licensed marriage family therapist is not credentialed to do that. Okay. Uh, clinical social worker is not credentialed to do that. Um, counselors, so licensed counselors, typically do mostly therapy. Uh, and they might specialize in an area like um, substance use or... Um, marriage and family therapy, something like that. Uh, and then you have clinical social workers, and social workers also can do therapy, just like counselors or psychologists, mm -hmm. but they also are more heavily trained in things like case management and um, social service kinds of, you typically find them more in community-type centers. Mm -hmm. um, and again, there's exceptions always, and those are the general, I, uh, there may be other, credentials that I'm forgetting, but those are sort of the big ones and okay. those are the differences. So clinical psychologist tends to do a lot of therapy and the thing that distinguishes us in a clinical sense, you know, not research, not education, but clinical in the, with clients would be our ability to do testing and assessment. Okay. Gotcha. So I know that you, so you, you mentioned that you were a psych or you were a clinical psychologist in the military, but also civilian world, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So how did your experience in the military differ from your experience in the civilian world being a clinical psychologist? So most people, I think, have an assumption that the primary difference would be in the clientele and like what the issues I'm working with. Mm -hmm. And it really wasn't. Um, the real difference is when you are a military psychologist, you at every at every appointment you have, you are maybe like 80 percent clinical psychologist and like 20% occupational psychologist. So it means that while I'm certainly trying to help you with whatever you're dealing with, and despite popular belief, it is not all PTSD. Mm -hmm. There's a fair amount of that. Yeah. Um, and actually there's a, a lot of folks who come into the military already with PTSD from tough upbringing, but, mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm trying to help you with your symptoms, but I'm also evaluating you to see if it's safe for you to deploy, if it's safe for you to carry a weapon, if it's safe for you to um, work dangerous duties, you know, to, to work with explosives, to right. whatever. Um, sometimes, you know, I'm also evaluating you to see if you are fit for continued military service, mm -hmm. right? If you have a temporary mental health condition, that means, you know, maybe for now you shouldn't carry a gun, but you'll probably recover and be fine you can likely stay in the military. Right. But, you know, if you have something that's going to take a couple of years to sort out, um, the military has health and fitness standards. And if you can't meet them, then you end up being discharged. And, and sometimes you get discharged, especially for medical things, in a way that looks like a retirement. You get money and things. But um, it made it tricky because... Folks coming to me were always cautious about what they wanted to tell me or not because they're trying to preserve their yeah, careers. Yeah, their job, right? Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so as a civilian psychologist, I don't think I was ever in a position where I had to do that, you know? Right. People come tell me anything, and their workplace would never even know they had the appointment, right? Yeah. 
So I, that was the primary difference. This, the other difference was the amount of additional duties you have in the military, right? So um, I was a flight commander for a while in the Air Force. So um, small unit, you know, 20 people or something. So in addition to seeing my patients and doing the paperwork associated with that, I also had to oversee the clinic. So the flight I oversaw was our clinic and the mental health clinic. So I had to oversee the numbers in the clinic, make sure we're hitting our quotas, make sure that we're um, getting paperwork done on time. I have to make sure that we're getting our, you know, each person in the clinic has to do an annual performance review for promotion. I have to make sure those are getting done and in. So there's all these additional duties. And then there's the duties that go with just being a military officer, no matter what your career field. Right. Right. And so those things were the primary difference. Um, There's also some differences in terms of military, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Like military type operational things. Like um, if somebody has a serious enough mental health condition that they are not fit for continued service, you have to go through what's called a med board, which is a big, long process, and it requires writing up a bunch of paperwork. And you don't, there's no med board process in the civilian world, mm-hmm. generally, like as a, in a community clinic. So um, you, there are things, for example, privacy is pretty well defined and pretty clear in the civilian world. It's a little different in the military world. Um, your 19-year-old adult you know, client, um, their commander actually has a right to some of their mental health material because they need to have accountability for them and know if they're able to deploy. And know. So there's things you can tell, but things also you can't that you mm-hmm. have to keep private. So there's differences like that yeah. based on the needs of the military. Um, those were the primary differences. The actual work with the clients was very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. So with that in mind, what, so when I think about, you know, clinical psychology, I think about counseling appointments, that sort of thing. I know for, for the first responder world, you know, for firefighters and police, I think that there's still kind of that stigma, you know, of, of seeking out help. And I think a lot of it just has to do with, you know, people call us when they're having a problem, Mm -hmm. you know? We're the problem solvers. Right. So for us to admit that we ourselves have some sort of problem, there's a stigma that's right. that's associated with that. I know, you know, in recent history, we're starting to see people who are medically retiring with psychological issues yeah. that you wouldn't see even 10 years ago. Right. You know, so I think it's slowly right. getting to the point where people are more willing to talk about that. I'm yep. sure the military is very similar, if yep. I had to guess. What are the barriers to to counseling people like that mm-hmm. or getting them to open up? And then how do you, how do you get past those barriers? So, um, so there's a few questions inherent in there. I'll try to address them all. If I miss something, just let me know. So I think, you know, a big, I think part of the reason why some of these things are improving, like you said, people being retired with mental health is more and more we're starting to understand that mental health really is biological health, Mm. right? Um, We understand that, for example, PTSD being the big one for both first responders and military folks, we understand that trauma creates changes in the brain, that it lives in the amygdala, right? And the amygdala is responsible for our fight or flight kind of responses. And what happens 
with trauma is it's a, it's a hiccup in our memory making processes, Mm. right? If something terrible happens and then you process it and it becomes a memory and the next day you wake up and, and your whole system recognizes that that memory was in the past, well, then you're probably fine and it's just a terrible memory. Mm-hmm. What happens with something like PTSD is that memory-making process gets a little stuck. And I'm going to date myself here, but it's like an old-fashioned record player. Every once in a while, the needle would skip and you keep mm-hmm. hearing the same thing over and over mm-hmm. and over. And so when these memories get stuck in the amygdala, and, and that's a little oversimplified, but the amygdala is like the primary player, um, the amygdala carries like recent information, right? The hippocampus carries old information memories. So what happens w- with a trauma is the trauma is so bad that we can't quite finish the processing. We get stuck um, to just keep it simple and not get too kind of scientific. And so we feel constantly like the threat that we just lived through, whatever trauma was, we feel like it's constantly happening, even mm-hmm. though it's not. Mm-hmm. So we perceive threat where there isn't one. And our central nervous system, our par- our sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight one, is overactive, constantly active. And when that's overactive, it causes certain behaviors and it causes survival behaviors. It causes us to be hypervigilant and on a high alert all the time and very mm-hmm. easily startled and mm-hmm. not trusting and right it, paranoid. It causes us to, to be that way because, you know, if you were legitimately in a firefight or, you know, putting out a fire or you need those qualities, mm-hmm. they keep you alive. Mm-hmm. And so... What PTSD really is, is a a condition of your nervous system, not just your thoughts, not just your emotions, but your nervous system believing there's a threat to your safety when there isn't. And so the more we understand the biology of these mental health kinds of things, I think the more people, more willing people are to consider it as, you know, quote, real. And with that in mind, do you feel like... Mm -hmm. You know, I would, I guess, as an as a as a whole, an industry. Do you feel like now there's this recognition that it's something that is curable, something that people yeah. can overcome and still lead a successful career? Yeah. Because I feel like that's a that's probably in my mind one of the biggest concerns is if somebody goes to a doctor and says, "Okay, I think I have PTSD." Yeah. You know, I went through this traumatic event mm-hmm. or whatever. Their number one concern, like you right. said, is I don't want to lose my job. Right. So how do I overcome this right. so that I can keep doing what yeah. I like to do? Yeah. So do you feel like the science behind it is more concrete now that it is something that's yeah. curable or is it, you know, what's the percentage of people who are actually able to overcome that sort of? Yeah. So, um, so the science suggests that most of the emotional mood disorders, so PTSD, adjustment disorder, depression, anxiety, that those are very much treatable and people absolutely can recover from them. Other things are a little trickier. Things like personality disorders, there's several of them. Um, Those, generally the belief is that those things can improve, but they tend not to go away. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing with things like schizophrenia. Um, You know, there are certain like developmental disorders like autism Mm -hmm. that don't really get cured. You know, you can hopefully if the person's functional enough because there's a spectrum you know, a continuum. Um, you can teach somebody with 
relatively severe autism to function sort of well, but the impairment doesn't necessarily improve mm -hmm. as it were, right? Mm -hmm. You're just sort of, you're just sort of helping the person get to the ends of their potential, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, I tend to my experience, so this is not scientific, this is anecdotal. Mm -hmm. My experience is that trauma-related disorders, PTSD, acute trauma disorder, um, adjustment disorder, that those are the most treatable of all of them. Mm -hmm. They get better the easiest. Yeah. I would rather treat 100 people with PTSD than 10 with depression. Because uh -huh. the people with PTSD, the hardest part is getting them to do the therapy because most of the time they really don't want to talk about what they've been right. through. But once they commit to doing it, they get better and they tend to get much better rapidly. Yeah. Um, my experience with people with depression or anxiety is that you over the course of years have this like ebb and flow of improvement and regression yeah. and it doesn't get better the way PTSD does. Mm -hmm. That could just be because I suck at treating depression and anxiety, <laughs> but that's my experience. Um, well, it sounds like one is more chemical, whereas the other mm -hmm. is more related to maybe an event. I don't know. Well, and I would, uh, there's a lot of people who will disagree with what I'm about to say. There's sort of two schools of thought. The school of thought I'm in says that probably most mental health problems, even depression and anxiety, are about what you've been through mm. and not necessarily what's wrong with yeah. you. Right? The brain responds to outside stimuli. So mm -hmm. even if you can measure a chemical imbalance... It's I, because of something else. Mm, that's my belief, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I tend to believe that people are generally resilient and strong and that things in their lives break them down. Mm -hmm. um, I would even take it a step further and say some of the things you're born with are still the result of what happened to you. They just happened to you in utero. Yeah. So... Uh, in fact, there's some data, and this is a little outdated because this is I learned this when I was in school, so you know this is at least a decade old, maybe more. But there was some data that there's a relationship between people who are born with schizophrenia and their mothers contracting a virus while they were in utero. Wow. So right, so you know, yes, they were born with it, but it's still the result of what happened to them. Mm, interesting. So that's m my take on it. Um, what the last thing I will say though, just to be realistic and, and I, this is important to me because my work with my podcast and some of the stuff I do on Facebook is about helping people understand what real recovery from trauma looks like. So when I say it gets better, um, the, what you've lived through doesn't go away and doesn't get erased, right? Mm -hmm. There's no undo button. So Everything we experience in our lives, good, bad, or indifferent, changes us. Mm -hmm. Having children is a wonderful experience, but it, it changes oh, us, yeah, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so if you were in combat as a veteran or if you were sexually assaulted, or that changes you. And it's a permanent part of your history. So mm -hmm. that doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. What does happen with people who get treatment is the symptoms certainly remit nightmares and hypervigilance and, you know, fear for no reason and mm -hmm. th those sorts of things, those improve. And what's very interesting to me is that specific to trauma, this doesn't happen in depression or in anxiety, people who recover, many, not all, but many people who recover experience what's called post-traumatic growth. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, meaning that... Yeah, we've talked about that, I think, yeah. Right. Yeah. Not only do they get better to a point of like returning to baseline, right? You know, if I injure my leg and I go to physical therapy, I get back to the point where it was just as strong as it used to be. Mm -hmm. 
people who have had trauma very often recover to a point where they are thriving so much better than they ever did before. It's like injuring your leg, going to physical therapy and coming back with a bionic one. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why I really liked working with trauma is because people can do exceptionally well afterward. Yeah. They still have an occasional nightmare about it once in a while. Sure. But the point is those nightmares are few and far between. And all that time in between is just really meaningful and Mm -hmm. purposeful. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So this, this wasn't a question that I had prepared for you, but I'm kind of curious now. Yeah. So one of the things that I've heard about first responders, mm-hmm. you know, firefighters in yeah. particular, and I don't really know about police officers, I would imagine it's probably the same, is that in, in comparison to the military, um, they say that for us, we don't generally experience PTSD per se, but more of like a chronic stress disorder mm-hmm. where, you know, you're just exposed to traumatic things over and over and over again. And then finally something just kind of like breaks inside of you. So, yeah, I think, so psychology is a young field and there's a lot that we are still figuring out every, so the DSM is the big book of diagnoses, right? And it tells you what the criteria are to diagnose things. And, um, every couple of years they come out with a new one and, Some things remain the same, but every couple of years, some things change pretty drastically based on research and such. Um, I think what they're sort of moving toward with what you're describing is what they call complex PTSD, Mm. right? Where there's just been so much trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. And what they're struggling with, I think, um, is the idea that when somebody experiences a traumatic event and develops PTSD... There's this very predictable constellation of symptoms that we can have. We have instruments to measure it. I can give you a sheet of paper. You can fill it out. And based on your score, I can say, well, this is probably PTSD, Mm -hmm. right? Complex PTSD, where you are chronically, you're seeing trauma constantly over the course of days, weeks, months, years, and it gradually whittles away at your resilience. And you find this with people who grow up in abusive households. You find this with people who are repeatedly sexually abused, and you find it with first responders. Um, the presentation of the symptoms can be very different from person to person. Mm. And so they're struggling to nail down a, a good, um, like a, a reliable um what's the word I'm looking for, set of criteria to diagnose. Right. Right. If you come in looking really depressed from years and years and years of trauma and somebody else comes in looking really kind of wound up and paranoid and hypervigilant, how can I diagnose you both with the same thing? Right. But yet the mechanism that brought you there is the same. Yeah. So I think that's the conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. So I'm reading a book called Comfort Crisis right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard, have you heard of the book? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it. It's okay. very good. Um, it has some very, you know, practical advice about mm-hmm. things that we can do to improve not only our physical well-being but also our mental well-being as well. But one of the reoccurring themes inside of that book is that we, per surveys, are the most stressed generation of all time. Mm-hmm. Which is odd because if you think about people who lived thousands of years ago, yeah. they were worried about like their Maslow's hierarchy of needs, their <laughs> basic needs, right? Yeah. Shelter, food, water. They're worried about getting killed. I mean, you got a disease, you died. You got an infection, you died. But yet we're the most stressed generation. And and what they attribute that to is technology. Mm Technology is obviously a great thing. We're using it right now. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that our brain, much like a muscle, a regular muscle in our body, 
needs rest in order to recover and grow. And if we're constantly engaged with technology, we're not allowing our brains to kind of shut off and do what they would normally be able to do. Do you, do you would you see that as being, you know, an issue for your everyday person dealing with maybe yeah. anxiety that is, is almost like superficial anxiety because of what we're being exposed to? So I would call that, in my opinion, now I've not read the book and I'm also not an expert on stress. So I have opinions, but take them with a grain of salt, right? Um, I would be careful about attributing an entire phenomenon to one thing yeah. like technology. Right. Um, although as I, you were talking, I was thinking about it and I was realizing that all the things I can think of that would include in, increased stress, um, relate back to some sort of technology. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so I do believe absolutely 100%, I a thousand percent agree that the inability to unplug um, and to recover, right? This is the same thing, by the way, with fitness, right? When I would work as a personal trainer, one of the things I would always explain to my, especially my really hardcore clients, mm. is that working out doesn't make you thinner, it doesn't make you stronger, it doesn't make you faster, it doesn't make you bigger, it doesn't make you, you know, more explosive. All of those adaptations occur during recovery, right? Right. Working out is just a, an artificial stimulus so you have something from which to recover, mm -hmm. right? A thousand years ago, life would have been the workout and you recover and you'd be stronger and faster. Right. And, and so I, I would say that to them because a lot of folks get overuse injuries because they don't recover. Mm -hmm. And I think our brains and our nervous systems work very much the same way. Right. Our um, sympathetic nervous system, which I already said is the fight or flight kind of thing, should be balanced with our parasympathetic nervous system, which is sometimes referred to as the rest and digest. Feed or breed. Or whatever. Yeah, feed yeah, or breed. Yeah. Because, yes, so what happens when our parasympathetic nervous system is activated is we want to rest and sleep. We get hungry, we want to eat, and we want to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. We want to talk, we want to hug, we want to make love. Right. We want to, you know, have our children on our laps. We want to like sort of touch and talk. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, those two nervous systems are supposed to be in so much balance that one of the predictors of good health is what they call heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. And essentially, every time you inhale, you activate your sympathetic nervous system. Every time you exhale, you activate your parasympathetic nervous system. So. Um, so the idea is that like your resting heart rate, if your resting heart rate is six beats per minute, your heart doesn't beat at a steady 60 beats per minute. What happens is every time you inhale, your heart rate gets fast and every time you exhale, it should get slow. That's what they refer to as the heart rate variability. And there should be a lot of variability, right? Every time you inhale, it should speed up a lot. Every time you exhale, it should slow down a lot. Mm -hmm. This is part of the reason why when we're about to do something kind of scary, we go, <gasps> and then when we're done with it, we go, <sighs> yeah, right? Yeah. And um, people with PTSD, for example, in studies have demonstrated very low heart rate variability, mm. meaning it just stays high all the time because they're always in sympathetic nervous arousal. Okay. So I do think the ability to relax, to feed and breed, to you know, eat to, um, is important for recovery. And if we don't recover, 
It's like the old, um, I always think of the old video games like Street Fighter, where your character had the life bar over their uh-huh. head, right? Yeah. And it just keeps getting knocked down and knocked down and knocked down. And if you don't play D for a little while, it doesn't get built back yeah. up. Yeah. So, um, so I would agree with that. I also think that we have exposure through technology to lots of information that we never had before. We're finding phenomena like if you poll people today, they would tell you um, that certain violent crimes or mass shootings and things are up. And in fact, they're not. I mean, in fact, it's one of the safest periods in human history to be alive. But what happened was when I, yeah, when I was a yeah. kid in the eighties, if there was a mass shooting in Wisconsin and I lived in New Jersey, I'd never hear about yeah. it. Right now you hear about it constantly. And so it gives us the perception that it's happening more, which stresses us out. Yeah. A thousand years ago, I could die in war for sure. But in order to die in war, I actually had to be on the battlefield today. I could be at work and my building could get bombed. You know, mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot of factors. And as I'm talking, yes, all of these things, you know, root back to some sort of technology. Yeah. But I, I think there's multiple variables. I don't think it's fair to blame it, for example, all on social media. Sure. Right. Well, and I mean, granted, social media is addictive. We know yeah. that. But social media is also a choice. Sure. You know, so how yeah. much you engage with that sort of information. Right. You know, I, I know for me personally, when COVID-19 first yeah. happened, I was like plugged in right. because, you know, we're all EMTs sure. at a minimum. Yeah. And so we knew like, we're going to be exposed to this virus. Yeah. And when it first came out, when it was novel, we yeah. didn't know anything about it. So yeah. like, I want to know everything mm-hmm. I can possibly know about this virus. Every single news article that comes out, I want to hear about yeah. it. And what I found happened was <clears throat> then and now I'm anxious about something that when in reality we went on, I mean, I don't know how many patients, but every single day for a period of time, we were going on people with COVID, yeah. people who had oxygen saturations and like the 60%, Oof. you know, older folks yeah. and stuff. But then I had to remind myself, I'm like, at the time, I'm like, I'm 28 years old. Right. You know, like my chances of actually getting damaged by this or hurt right. are pretty low. You know, right. I don't want to bring it home to my family. And yes, there's, there's cause for concern. I need yeah. to pre- take precautions, but R- reasonable cause. Right. Yeah. But me feeding into the the 24 hour news cycle and reading about right. this is doing nothing good for right. my mental health yeah. you know and yeah. that's one of the biggest lessons that i heard, i learned from the pandemic yeah. is at some point you just got to unplug well and the other piece i totally agree and in fact one of the very first interventions i would do with my clients who had ptsd when i was working as a psychologist is have them stop watching the news mm-hmm. almost always um but what i um would say about the the pandemic that's interesting to me is um, this is the first time I think in my lifetime that the general public got to watch the scientific process occur, which the scientific process is a lot of sort of guessing and testing mm-hmm. and being wrong and then trying again and guessing and testing and being wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's why people are getting very frustrated with like, well, why don't you know what to do? Like yeah. today it's a mask. Masks Tomorrow's two no masks. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. And so early on, like you're talking about, you were actually constantly plugged in to hear all the latest information from people who really didn't know the all answers either. Right. Yeah. 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 And so it's it's funny because <clears throat> I remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, which granted now he's he's caught in a, he's caught a lot of flack, but I'm I'm a still a Joe Rogan fan. I listen to oh, Joe yeah, Rogan a lot, yeah. and he had a 
epidemiologist on within yep. like the first week of the pandemic. Yep. And this guy said, he was like, look, it's a respiratory illness. Trying to stop this illness is like trying to stop the wind. Yep. It's not going to happen. Yep. So we're just going to have to learn to live with it. Yep. And we took all these precautions to stop it. And yep. ultimately this guy was right. Like yeah. it's, it's still here. It's yeah. going to eventually hopefully move to an endemic stage, but right. yeah, but I, I have a feeling it's a permanent part yeah, of our lives now exactly. forever. Yeah. And I look back on it and I'm like, I, I exerted so much brain power mm-hmm. Over something that, first of all, I can't control. Yep. And second of all, you know, we all got it. I yep. got it. And, yep. you know, I got it too. Yeah. And yep. it's that, that's another lesson that I took from this whole thing is I don't know about you, but what causes me probably the most anxiety in life yeah. is not being able to control something. Yes. When I feel like I can't control my own life, <laughs> that does not sit well with yeah. me. So, like, the idea that there's this virus circulating or I have to, I'm on lockdown for a month or whatever. I can't leave the house. All these places are closed. I don't like that. Like that sense of not having control over my life really bothered me, you know? And I think a lot of people felt that way, but then I look back on it and I'm like, if I had just accepted that there's nothing I can do about it and accepted that it's, it's here, I would have, had so much less stress in yeah. that whole situation. Yeah. You know? I'm pretty lucky. Things like that. Um, so first of all, I tend not to get anxious most of the time. I have moments, but mm-hmm. not really. Mm-hmm. My tendency when I'm overwhelmed or out of control or whatever is more toward depression. I kind of mm-hmm. just want to give up and throw my hands in the air and I get like Eeyore, right? Yeah. Like I just, all oh, my house blew down. And yeah. um, so that's like, that's my tendency. But I don't get it over things like COVID-19 or like the, like I, I kind of, I don't know. I attribute it. I don't know if this is correct, but I attribute it to growing up with my mother being sick and dying when I was young. Like I learned very early that there are things that are just out of your control. Mm-hmm. And so I tend to be okay with that. Um, but, um, but I do get overwhelmed easily. You know, I can be like sitting at home and, um, if there's like a knock on the door, a text message comes through on my phone and an email alert pops up all at the same time, I want to burn the house down. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I don't really experience that. It's funny how everybody you know, processes yeah. information differently. Yeah, it's just yeah. too much coming in at once. Right, you right. Know? Information yeah. overload. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good segue into this question. So, you know, I don't, I don't think everybody... You know, even people who yeah. listen to this episode, I don't think everybody's going to go and meet with a, a counselor or psychologist no. or whatever. But for your everyday person, what are some ways that you would recommend reducing stress or anxiety in their mm-hmm. in their daily life? Right. Practical ways, I guess. Yeah. And so, so first of all, I'll start with you only need to reduce stress if you have too much, right? Because there is a such thing as not enough stress. Mm-hmm. Um I would say that people who are physically deconditioned, so out of shape, don't have enough physical stress in their lives, Mm -hmm. right, to recover from. Um, Most people feel like they have too much stress. Um, What I would, I would take the same approach or a similar approach to stress as I took to the idea of overtraining when I was a personal trainer. I liked to talk to my clients about under-recovering. Right, because if you're overtraining, there's only one solution, and that solution is to train less. Sometimes that's the right solution, but if you're under recovering, there's several possible 
solutions. One solution could be to train less. One solution could be to rest more. One solution could be to adjust your diet. One solution could be to make sure you're getting hydrated enough. Mm -hmm. One solution could be to look at your sleep quality, not just how much you're resting, but are you sleeping efficiently and well, right? It could be increasing things like massage or foam rolling, right? There's lots of ways to increase recovery. And so I would say the same thing about stress. Reducing stress is fine if you're able to. Some people are in positions where they just can't, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question is more for me, in my opinion, how do I recover from stress? And if all else fails, you might have to figure out how to reduce it, right? Mm -hmm. If you're doing everything you can and it's just overwhelming, then yeah, maybe maybe you need to cut something out of your life or maybe, right? Um, So I look at how we recover from stress. Um, and, and also when we're not in very acutely stress, stressful circumstances, how do we develop resilience so that the stress is permeates us less? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and the answers are going to be different for different people. Right. Um, the typical, you know, you hear the typical like, Oh, get a massage and, you know, take a day day out and read a book and like those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with those things. But, um, I think people just need to be able to incorporate what works for them. And I actually am of the belief that in our culture, um, what's in the way usually is not really the need to do more. I think my observation, which is also not scientific at all, you know, my observation and three bucks will buy you a coffee. But um, my observation is that we have a very sort of puritanical belief system and we over glorify busy in the United States. Yeah, for sure. Right. If you're not doing anything, then, you know, if you're just resting, then you're of no use to anybody. And so I think the bulk of the work when it relates to what you're asking me has to do with looking inward and um and come getting like achieving or approaching peace with the idea that you don't buy into that rhetoric Mm -hmm. right that it is okay to rest that you don't have to be busy 24 7 all the time that quality time with your family is important Mm -hmm. that quality time alone might be important right i'm kind of introverted. So I recharge my batteries alone. Me too. I love my kids. Mm -hmm. I love my partner. I love my jujitsu friends. Mm -hmm. I love my biker friends. Right. And I want them all to go away from time to time. Yeah. I totally get it. So knowing yourself and not buying into the social pressure to always be doing more, always be doing something always. Right. There's value. I read an article fitness wise a few years ago about the value of what he called the punch clock workouts. And what this guy was saying is like every workout can't be record breaking. Mm-hmm. It just can't. Right. And so there's value to like going into the gym on a typical Tuesday and doing an average workout and not killing yourself, but working hard enough that you have a little something to recover from and doing that a few times and then going in and killing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so Um, you started off the question by saying, you know, not everybody's going to go to therapy. Uh, I know this might be, uh, like sacrilege for a therapist to say, I don't think people should run to therapy. I really don't. Mm. I think it's 
I think everyone should go when they need to. It's yeah. like the dentist, right? Right, or 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 any other doctor for that matter. I think you know you can take care of your health day to day perfectly well, right? Eat a decent diet, stay hydrated, get some exercise, mm-hmm. get decent rest. And even on times we wake up not feeling so great, maybe with a low-grade fever and a little bit of a headache, you don't go running to the doctor. You take a few ibuprofen, maybe take a day off of work and you rest a little and you hydrate, you drink some Gatorade or whatever, Pedialyte, and then you feel better, yeah. right? Mental health is not that different. You know, if you aren't feeling so great or you're a little down in the dumps or you got... Listen, sunlight's important. It's well-established. Get outside, even on hazy gray days. Get outside for a little bit. Bundle up if you need to. Get sunlight on your face and your eyes, right? That's important. Um, Movement is important. Move your joints. Get your heart rate up even just a little bit. Doesn't have to be a hard, you know, interval kind of workout, but move your joints a little bit. Get your heart rate moving. Get your... blood and fluids flow in a little bit, right? If possible, a little bit of resistance training is mm-hmm. good too. Um, you know, I, I personally believe resistance training is king, but when you're feeling low, it's hard. So yeah. just start moving, yeah. right? Something, stretch a little, go for a walk. Human interaction, right? It's maybe the last thing you feel like you want to do, but sort of, you know, bite down on the mouthpiece and Go and connect with somebody. Mm -hmm. Tell them what's going on. Tell them you've been struggling. Read something uplifting. If you're not feeding your brain something, you know, if all you're feeding your brain, I I don't want this to sound like victim blaming, right? When you, depression and anxiety grow on themselves, right? When you're anxious, you feel worried, and then you tell yourself all these terrible things are going to happen, which makes you feel more worried, which makes you tell yourself all these things are going to happen, right? Right. Start feeding your brain some different information. If you do all that and you still don't feel better, then go to therapy, right? But I think, you know, a lot of things we can take care of either ourselves or in our communities with others, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And to me, um, my problem with... Uh, the the sort of the medical paradigm in this country. And let me be clear, like, I think we have great medicine, like better than anywhere else in the world, right? Like if I'm in a car wreck, bring me to the ER. Yeah, yeah, for sure, sure right? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But sort of the business of medicine with managed care and with insurance and with, we're sort of really focused on the alleviating of symptoms and getting people back to baseline. I think there's a place for like, creating communities that help each other thrive yeah right to do better than baseline yeah right the absence of symptoms is a start but let's really feel great right Mm -hmm. and so again for each individual the recommendations may be different which is why i haven't said oh do this do that do that right yeah but i think there are general things like sunshine like movement like good nutrition and hydration right sleep yeah, sleep yeah. is super important, sleep. Mm-hmm. And what's more important than quantity is quality, mm-hmm. right? You hear all this talk about eight hours, but the research says that most people need somewhere between something like five and a half and nine. So you might not need eight hours, but it's got to be quality mm-hmm. sleep. Yeah, um, You would be amazed at how many people have mental health-like symptoms or even physical symptoms like high blood pressure. And if they 
you know, drink more water and even out their electrolytes, it all goes away. Yeah. Right. So there's things like that, that I think we might want to try before we go running to therapy. Yeah. If it doesn't work, I don't think there's a 0% shame in therapy at all. Yeah. I think it's perfectly fine to go do, but I don't think you need but to take, avoid it. Take steps before you get there. Yeah. Just like you would with your physical health, right? right? Exercise, yeah. eat well. Or yeah. like you said, with a doc, you know, cold or flu, you're not going to yeah. right away go to the doctor. No. You know what I mean? If it persists, you will, right? Yeah. yeah same no, thing. I think, I think. <clears throat> what you're describing is a process that I've been learning a lot about over the yeah. last couple of years and I've taken steps in my own life. Um, the first thing would be like you talked about if you if you have too much on your plate or you have too much stress addressing that. So yeah. like a, a process that I went through in the last couple of years was I was doing so many things and I, I wrote down a list of all the things I was doing. So I had like no joke yeah. and they weren't like weekly jobs, but you know, in, there was some that were every week. There were some that were maybe yeah. every month or every quarter, but I had like four or five jobs, Yeah. you know, and I was trying to do my master's degree. So I'm right. doing all this stuff. I wrote down a list and I was like, okay, what of these things am I replaceable? Yeah. Am I, and am I not replaceable? Yeah. And I was only like, quote unquote, not replaceable. Cause I think everybody's replaceable. What, yeah. right? what I really mean is, am I replaceable in a short period of time? Yes. Right. Easily. replaceable. Right. Yeah. There was only like a couple things that I wasn't replaceable for. Sure. So everything else yeah. off the table. Good right? for you. Which was totally freeing. Like yeah. instantly felt a, a change in my mental health. I watched a, and actually he was on Joe Rogan too, a sleep se- or sleep uh, scientist mm-hmm. talk about the value of sleep. Like you just said, yep. quality sleep, yep. um, how you know people can have psychological yeah. um basically the appearance of some sort of psychological issue, but it's sleep related. Not to mention now the world world health organization recognizes sleep as a possible carcinogen, lack of sleep as a possible carcinogen that we don't produce T cells like we normally do if if we're not rested. It's under recovering. It's a form of under recovering. Just like the stress of life. Yeah, absolutely. So trying to improve sleep, um, that book comfort crisis talks about how there's been multiple psychological studies that if people just get out in nature, yeah. up to five hours a month, Right, that's enough to improve your mental health yes. because we are beings that are meant to be connected to nature, sunlight, yeah. obviously vitamin yeah. D plays a factor in, in how we feel and right. our psyche, you know, so those simple steps, exercise, yeah. you know, relieving anxiety. That's what jujitsu yeah. is for me. And in, oh in one, in one sense is a, is a stress reliever. Um, but you know, combining yeah. all of those things and yeah. my wife and I have had conversations before where she's like, and I've never, I've never had a therapist or sought yeah. therapy, mm-hmm. but I've always told my wife, like, I don't really feel like I need to, you know, I, I don't feel like this over overwhelming desire to go talk to somebody mm-hmm. about anything. But I think sometimes the pendulum swings in the opposite direction where it's like, well, it's just part of the normal routine. You have to go talk to somebody, you know what I mean? Right. And I've been very resistant to that oh. because I'm like, at, at least for right now, I'm yeah. not saying in the future, I won't feel this way, but for right now in my life, I feel pretty good. Yeah. Like I feel healthy. I feel rested. My mental health is good. I'm generally yeah. happy. So yeah. I would really just be going to talk about any, you know, cursory mm. anxiety I have in my yeah. life that's fleeting. You know what I mean? Right. And it sounds to me like you're talking to her. Right. So good. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm actually, I am a little bit surprised that you, you did say that because you would think that a clinical psychologist would say like, well, everybody should, no, you know, I, I think everyone should take care of their mental health. Sure. Right. Sure. And I think that probably at some point in their lives, everyone 
could use the help of a therapist. I think that there is value in therapy even when you're not mentally ill. There can be, right? Um, just going in to kind of sort out your life stuff. Mm -hmm. With insurance and whatever, that gets tricky because you have to have a diagnosis, mm. um, which is why like now I do coaching instead of therapy because I'm not treating conditions. I'm working with people on their lives, right? Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> um, no, I yeah, I don't, I would not want, just like I wouldn't be like, hey man, every time, you know, if you drink something cold and your tooth hurts, you better run to the dentist. Like, yeah. No, like right. you go when you need to. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about jujitsu. Anytime, yes. well, every single person that we've had on so far, with the exception of one person, yeah. does jujitsu. Yep. So I always like to throw in the jujitsu question. So has jujitsu improved your mental health? And if so, in what ways? So, um, so jujitsu, like you said, it's like one of the things is like a stress relief. For me, like jujitsu is an incredibly spiritual, philosophical, and self-exploratory process. Too. That too. Yeah. By the way, self-exploratory is the key to mental health. We often think it's other people or circumstances or whatever that upset us. And the other people in circumstances are just mirrors that reflect us back to us. Mm. And it's how we react that's the issue, right? Yeah. And so, um, so to me, that's the value of jujitsu. I'm 48 year old purple belt. I'm not, I have no s delusions of being a world champion someday mm -hmm. or <clears throat> I'm not going to go fight MMA. The odds of me being in a street fight ever again in my life are pretty slim. Yeah. Um, so I am, and I'm feeling it now because I haven't been in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I'm in a position that you just described where I have way too much going on. Mm -hmm. It sort of escalated gradually, and I didn't sort of realize it as it was happening. But now I'm like, I'm missing appointments, and I can't keep stuff straight. And I'm, and unfortunately, jujitsu, because of the timing of the classes, is one of the first things that gets kind of bumped. And yet, it's, I would say, jujitsu and music and nature are the three, oh, I guess a fourth, my motorcycle. Mm -hmm. Four, like, primary sort of zen mental health mm -hmm. happy place mm -hmm. kind of things in my life and um and i feel incredibly conflicted with jujitsu because i love it i mean i find so much value in it psychologically and philosophically and physically and if you were to like just from from afar, look in and observe my consistency in jujitsu and my ability to like show up and get there, and mm -hmm. you would never believe me when yeah. I told you that, right? Like, well, you're a purple belt, so, though. I mean, obviously, you've you know you you've stuck with it long enough to. I mean, for I, I started training in the 1990s. Yeah, but still, I mean, for people for people who don't know, I mean, purple belt is kind of like the first serious belt, yeah. or at least I think it is. I right. mean, blue belt is an accomplishment because you've showed up enough right. times yeah. and you have the fundamentals. Right. You didn't quit just because it got hard. Right. Yeah. But most, most professors or gym owners don't mm -hmm. give somebody a purple belt unless they think eventually right. they're going to become a black belt. You well, know? I will. I may yeah. be 70, but I will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah, so I mean, it's the same experience for me too. You know, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's, it's mental, it's physical, it's psychological. Yeah. I, I do believe it's spiritual. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I constantly remind myself of is that jujitsu is this journey 
that's you versus you. Yes. You know, and I think that that's where people end Absolutely. up quitting yep. is yep. they start and say they do it for a year yep. and then somebody else starts and they're a natural athlete yep. and within a month or two, yep. they're beating them yep. and people go home and they get pissed and they're yep. like, why can't I be like that yep. person? Yep. When in reality, it's like that person might not be here in a year. Yeah. I mean, statistically, I don't know what the statistics are, right. but how many people quit before yeah. or at, before Purple Belt? Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at our gym. Yep. I mean, Purple Belt and up, I can't think of how many people there are, but it's probably less than... It's a small percentage. Yeah, yeah. it's a small percentage out of yeah. probably 350 members. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I used so. to have a very philosophical instructor. I loved working with him. And he would say things like, he would tap me out and be like, I didn't beat you. You lost. Yeah. Right? Like, it had nothing to do with me. Yeah. And he would say, like, he would armbar me or choke me or something. And he would say, I was just moving. You were in the way of my movement. Right? The movement stopped in this armbar or whatever because you were in the way. Had you not been there or kept moving or whatever, I would have kept moving. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, and I love that. You, you did ask me what I think the benefits are, and I didn't quite. I mean, yes, there's physical and emotional, spiritual. Off the top of my head, the benefits that stand out to me the most. Uh, the first is, <clears throat> you know, you hear a lot about mindfulness. And when you talk about mindfulness, you think of like some monk meditating. And, mm. and I do meditate. I'm a meditator. And I think there's great value in it. But the definition of mindfulness is being in the present moment, not worried about the past, not worried about the future. Well, having a 230-pound gorilla on your back trying to choke you <laughs> unconscious keeps you very yeah. much in the moment. Yeah, that's true. And I really believe that I get a meditative of, uh, impact from jujitsu of being very present and very in the moment. You and have to be. Not worried about anything else for the hour and a half I'm in the room. Totally. Huge benefit. Yeah. Second benefit, and this one people may say is silly, but there's actually some research on this. Um, the We Defy Foundation that connects veterans, wounded veterans, mm. with jujitsu mm -hmm. uh, has spo either sponsored or conducted some studies. The idea of non aggressive, nonviolent, non-sexual touch is very absent in our society, especially for men. And the jiu-jitsu mats is one of the very few places where you can physically touch other people without sexual intent, without violent intent, and it's safe and it's nobody box at it. And, you know, and I do believe there's real value in that. I think you connect with people in a different way when you have physical contact with them. Yeah. So I believe that's a big value that I don't get many other places mm -hmm. in my life. Um, and then the last one that jumps out, I mean, I could probably think of it and come up with a hundred more, but the last one that jumps out is really prominent. And you hear like people like Hicks and Gracie or Henzo Gracie say this all the time, but the ability to remain calm in very uncomfortable situations. Mm -hmm. I've come to the conclusion in my life with the help of jujitsu that almost nothing is a real emergency such that, let me define that, such that you can't at least take a breath and sort of measure your options, mm -hmm. right? Nothing, even a real emergency is seldom so bad that you have to move now and you can't think and freaking out is the re yeah. right response, right? right. And so jujitsu has taught me that no matter how uncomfortable I am, I can take a breath and at least for a moment, assess. Mm -hmm. And that's proven incredibly value in my, valuable in my life. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, to your point with that, <clears throat> I know how much it's helped me because I started jujitsu after I became a firefighter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your, your uh, little part there about being able to take a breath and calm down, like yeah. even in real emergencies, yeah. I've been able to take some of those lessons and be like, okay, right. this is something that I can work through, yeah. you know, same as when I'm in jujitsu and somebody is beating me or is on top of me or crushing me or whatever. People don't beat you, John. Oh, they do. <laughs> they do. John Herrera beats me all the time. Oh, well, John Herrera is not a Marcelo person. beats me. John Herrera Adam and Marcelo are me. not people. Come on. <laughs> people don't beat you. But, uh, <laughs> You know, getting getting in that that mindset is is so helpful just in everyday life. Yeah, um, it really is amazing. I've I've rolled at other gyms like when I travel, yeah. I always bring my gi when I go to always. other states. Yeah, and you know when I roll at another gym, I'm really not trying to, I'm not trying to beat anyone per se. Nope. You know, I'm just on vacation, so sometimes yeah. I'll put myself in worse positions than I would yeah. put myself a prime. And I've had a people a couple people on the way like, wow, you're just so calm when you're in a certain position. Yeah. I'm like. Well, I'm not going to die. Yeah, you know what right, I mean. Right. There's no. This isn't a lethal yeah. consequence yeah. to me. So, yeah. that's huge. But I also think, like to your point about the bonding. Yeah, I never really thought about the like physical touch piece. But what I always thought it was was you grow so close to people in jujitsu because you suffer together. Like yes, you're, you're there's going that too. That mutual, yeah, of course. You know that mutual. Yeah uncomfortable yeah. type thing. You know what I mean? That's why it's like people who went to West Point stay in contact forever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you brought up something, one of my favorite jujitsu stories. Um, so first of all, I also like Joe Rogan. Yeah. I want to be very clear. I don't worship Joe Rogan. I don't either. I don't worship yeah. anybody, but I really like Joe Rogan a lot. And I can say that with full confidence because it's okay with me if people are wrong once in a while. Mm -hmm. So I don't think As they any, should be. Yeah. People and, are wrong. And yeah. I believe he's been wrong once yep. or twice. And he'll admit to that. It's totally fine. Yeah. Yep. There are things that he probably thinks he's right about that I don't agree with, yep. and that's okay sure. too. Yeah. So I really like Joe Rogan. I think he's a good thinker. I think he's hilarious. I think he's open to being wrong and changing his mm -hmm. opinion. So I like him a lot. Um I only mention that because I'm thinking of a podcast now with Elliot Marshall. Do you know oh, Elliot yeah. Marshall? Yeah, uh, the Fire Marshall. Yes. Yep. Yeah. What from is the it? UFC. Yeah. What's it's the a gospel of fire? The gospel yeah. fire. Yeah. Yeah. I've listened to a few of his yeah. episodes. So I've listened to lots of them, and I've read his book, and I like Elliot Marshall a lot. I'm a big fan, and we have things in common. He grew up in New Jersey too. He's half Jewish. I'm Jewish. We have some similarities, but um, <clears throat> he. Uh, Early on, and I don't remember who he was interviewing, I could kick myself, but he was interviewing a, not UFC famous, but a well-known jiu-jitsu person in the jiu-jitsu community, and I can't remember which one it was. And um, But anyway, the guy was telling this story, and they had a visitor come to their academy, like you were talking about, and he was advanced, brown belt something, purple belt, whatever, and he was rolling with one of this guy's blue belts and, you know, killing him, like mm -hmm. beat him, right? Like... And when they got done, the blue, you know, they gave each other a, a hug and the blue belt was like, man, that was awesome. Your pressure, your top pressure was like crazy, crazy heavy. And the guy was like, really? I couldn't tell. I kept trying to get heavier because you didn't look like it was heavy at all. And the guy said, oh, yeah, um, our professor doesn't let us make a face. Uh, and the guy was like, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, we're not allowed to make a face. And so the guy was saying, my approach when I teach is I sort of have this idea that there's basically three things you can control, right? You can control your face. I don't care how comfortable you sure. are. You can control yeah. your face, number one. Number two, you can control your breath. And number three, you may not, maybe you're not able to control your thoughts per se, but you are able to control how you react to your mm -hmm. thoughts. 
And he's like, those three things, if you can master those on the mats, they're going to add so much value to the rest totally. of your life. And I just love that story. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there there have definitely been times I can think of where I'm like, man, this sucks. Yeah. Like this pressure sucks or this position sucks. I think who I feel it most with in recent history is Adam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because Adam oh is just God. huge. Enormous, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I actually, like, I've never heard that. I've never heard anybody yeah. explain that, but I have consciously thought to myself when I'm rolling, I'm like, even as much as this sucks, right. rolling with Adam, he's freaking yeah. cradling me or he's yeah. putting my neck in a weird position. Yeah. First of all, I'm not going to let him know yeah. that it sucks. Nope. He doesn't so get Hopefully Adam doesn't listen yes. to this episode because <laughs> he's not going to know. Yes. Second of all, like when I am in those positions, I'm like, okay, am I, am I actually being threatened with a submission or is this just uncomfortable? Right. And if it's uncomfortable, then I'm not, I'm not done. I'm right. not tapping. The fight's not over. And like you said, if I can breathe, that's another thing I think about too. John Herrera, he does that muzzle on yes. his face from the back. Just covers up your mouth and nose, yep. You can still take a breath. Yes. There's cracks in the yes. finger. I can still yeah. take a little yep. breath. And yep. if I can breathe, I'm not being submitted. Yeah. So like that's sure. my mind yeah. that's yeah. my mindset. And that's funny yeah. that you mentioned yeah. that because I guess subconsciously yeah. I've kind of been thinking that yeah. all along. I was but rolling with uh, Professor Lee once yeah. and he had me a knee and belly so bad that I in my mind I was just going like okay, just breathe and don't tap, breathe and don't tap, because I don't want to tap the pressure, yeah. right? Breathe and don't tap. Yeah. And um, and uh, so in my mind, that's all that was going and going. Mm-hmm. And we finally get through, mercifully, we get through the end of the round. And uh, and sometimes I roll with that guy, and it makes me question all my life's he's decisions. So like, yeah, maybe this whole jujitsu thing's just not for yeah. me, you know? Yeah. But he's like, dude, you're hilarious. And I was like, why, what do you mean? And he's like, I had you in the belly, and all I could hear was this. <sighs> Don't tap, don't tap, don't tap. I didn't even know I was doing it out loud. But he's like, you just kept going, don't tap, don't tap, don't tap. Don't tap, don't tap. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, but you talk about being present, yeah. right? Like yeah. I wasn't worried about anything else. Yeah. And so. Yeah, Lee's yeah. another really good one. His, <clears throat> his guard retention's insane. Yes. Um, okay. I think you already actually answered this one. I was going to ask yeah. you about when you would encourage people to seek therapy, yeah. but. That was more of a, more of an interval. Like, do you feel like it's important? So I can give, yeah, let me give you a quick two second. If you've tried everything you can to feel better and uh, several weeks have gone by and it's not remitting or getting better, go seek therapy. Number one. Number two, if your symptoms are severe enough that they are impairing your ability to function, your ability to work, your ability to function in your relationships, go get therapy. Mm -hmm. Number three, and this is the big one. If you ever have any thought of any sort about ever ending your life, go seek therapy. Sure. That makes sense. That's it. That's the big three. That's good. Yeah. Okay. In your opinion, how much of our psychological issues stem from childhood experiences? Well, so that can get very complex and I could probably teach a semester on that, let alone, you know, a bit of a podcast. What I would say is the foundation is laid in childhood. And if your childhood was severely neglectful or abusive, that's probably a good, good shot that, that you grew up because your brain is developing and your, your ability to perceive the world and perceive yourself and understand relationships, that's all developing in childhood mm. and it's automatically impaired. Um, the, the largest public health study ever done is called the, the ACEs study. It was done by Kaiser Permanente and the CDC. Um, it's on the CDC website. ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And what they found was that people who had one or more of these 
13 or so particular adverse childhood experiences were at increased risk for all sorts of mental health and physical health problems later in life from certainly drug use and smoking to depression to anxiety to um, death by suicide to all kinds of things like asthma and allergies and lupus and obesity. And, and so if you're interested, go check out the ACEs study. But there, in my eyes, after that, there can be no question that the childhood experiences are super important. That said, you can still come out of childhood relatively healthy, but if there was a shaky foundation laid, you're going to be more vulnerable for events that occur later, mm-hmm. right? If you come out of childhood having been sort of, you know, well-loved and well-nurtured and also well-disciplined and, you know, parenting sort of the, the most effective parents, according to the research, are those that are high in warmth and high in demand. So if your parents demanded a lot of you and loved all over you, then you're probably going to come out with better resilience, right? Yeah. If either of those domains was less than optimal, you're going to come out with some impairment in your resilience. And unless you build it up yourself, you'll be more susceptible to adversity when it occurs. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk, can you elaborate a little bit further on that last little part about warmth and demand? Cause I remember when, when I came on your podcast, you talked a little bit about how even, you know, at the lower spectrum of some of those, there's better outcomes depending on what type of parent people are. Yeah. So, I don't remember all of them in order. You'd have to look up the um, the study, and the easy way to do that is to go to a, a to Google Scholar and just search in this search engine um, something like parent like oh it's mothers warmth and demand because they didn't study fathers back then they yeah. didn't think we parented right <laughs> so um, but basically you can have um, parents who are high in warmth and high in demand. You have parents who are high in warmth, low in demand high in demand, low in warmth, or low in both. Um, Essentially, the best, and what they did in this study actually was they followed these kids for like 20 years until they were adults, and then looked at how well adjusted they were at adults, how functional their relationships were, how well they did in the workplace, how happy they reported being. And what they found was that the kids who grew up with parents who had high warmth, loved them a lot, hugged them a lot, told them they loved them, and high demand, made them do chores, punished them when they were out of line, you know, had consequences. Those kids did the absolute best as adults. Um, the kids who had parents who were high in warmth, very loving, but low in demand, didn't ask anything of them, did the absolute worst as adults. Which is crazy because the alternative is essentially just complete neglect. Well, and the, or high demand with low warmth. Right, okay. Right, so there's two other. Yeah. But the truth is lo, just neglect, low warmth, low demand, still did better yeah. than the kids who had high warmth with low demand. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I know I talked to you about this, but that's probably one of the things that I <clears throat> am constantly working on as a parent is it's so easy for me to be super affectionate and loving yeah. with my daughter. <clears throat> she's definitely like, you talk about how being a parent change, changes you. Yeah. She's un, she's uncovered this compassion, super compassionate side to me yeah. that really only she experiences. Yeah. You know, it's really weird. Yes. Um, yes. I've, I've been in your case at Katami and I've not experienced <laughs> any compassion <Yeah>. at all. <laughs> so, but yeah, so she, 
she gets all that, but the but the discipline piece is right. what I struggle with, yes. you know, as a father. Right. Right. My wife's much better at that, but right. I'm getting better. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got to know. I got like a, right. a one strike rule now. So well, that that's it's cool to work on yourself, but the thing to understand is that she's still getting both. Yeah. Right. So she's probably getting set up well. Right. Because she's getting high warmth and she's getting high demand, even if it's coming from different parents. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So somebody needs to fill that role. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, <clears throat> let's bring this up. A little bit on a high note. I felt like our jujitsu talk was a high note. It's, yeah, it's a heavy, sure. heavy talk when we talk about you know psychological stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can what be. do you feel like the definition of happiness is, and how do we achieve it? So, um, I don't. I have a hard time. I thought it, you you sent me these questions ahead mm-hmm. of time, so I thought about this a lot. And what I decided to do was shy away from trying to define it. Um, and w- what I think I'm going to do is, is highlight the difference between state and trait. Because you can use different words, and I don't know which words mean what to which people, right? So to me, I think of happiness as being a state. A state is something that comes and goes, right? Some great event happens, and I'm really happy. The event's over, and I return back to baseline, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think of... Something like, say, contentment as being more of a trait, right? Generally, over time, am I content mm-hmm. or satisfied? Or, but you could call that happy, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to get hung up on the semantics. But generally, um, I believe that there are aspects to what creates. So the, so the, the state aspect, like something happens and I'm really happy, I think that's sort of like, I mean, I guess you can put yourself in positions to experience more events that would, but generally it's like, you know, there's a wedding, yay, like there's, you know, there's a birth of a child, yay, there's, you know, and then sometimes there's unhappy events, sometimes there's a death in the family or somebody's sick or, right, Mm -hmm. or you have financial hardship or, so I see that as being maybe not entirely, but largely up to chance. Mm -hmm. Um, The trait aspect, the long-standing one, I think is more in our control. And um, there are things that I think contribute. So I think of happiness generally as the absence of dis-ease. So not disease is one word, but D-I-S hyphen E-A-S-E, dis-ease. And disease as an illness could fall into that category of dis-ease but so could say general dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've known people in your life who have that temperament where mm-hmm. they're just predisposed to dissatisfaction, yeah. right? Um, so I think, you know, there's aspects of, you know, learning to practice gratitude contributes to a sense of well-being. Mm-hmm. I think, um, uh, and, and gratitude is actually the, the, the counter, if you will, to um, or the the solution for that temperament of being generally dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. The more you look at reasons for gratitude, the less dissatisfied you are. Yeah, and so I think that um, happiness as a trait, as a longstanding, comes from gratitude, satisfaction, meaning and purpose, and um, what would I call this? Grit, 
mm-hmm. the building of resilience. Yeah. I actually think that there has to be an element in suff- of su- I've never met anybody who doesn't suffer a little, even voluntarily, like a jujitsu or sitting in yeah. a cold tub or, right. you know, in an ice bath or, or lifting weights seriously or, you know, doing cr- whatever, Spartan races or mm-hmm. whatever their thing is. Uh, and it doesn't have to be physical. It could be chess masters who spend yeah. hours and hours right working at chess or musicians, you know, the Eddie Van Halens and Randy Rhodeses of the world. Um, I've never met somebody who would say that they were truly generally happy who didn't have some area of struggle that was incredibly meaningful to them. Right. So, um, so I think that the definition of it is pretty subjective, right? Like it's hard. Each person decides for themselves when they're satisfied and happy. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that a life that has meaning and purpose where you're doing things you find important, I think that the absence of this dis-ease, gratitude and some sort of struggle are probably the core the ingredient. The core yeah. ingredients, right? Yeah. There might be others for different people. Right. But those core ingredients probably are pretty important, in, yeah. my, in my opinion. No, I think that that's, that's great. I mean, for me, what you're saying kind of stands out with a couple things that I've learned in life. You know, the, the Maslow, <clears throat> Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. something I, I learned very early on. And, yeah. you know, obviously you can't get to that self-actualization yeah. phase until all your basic needs are met. Right. But once you get there, that's kind of what you're looking for, right? Yep. And I feel like what people have a lot of dis- dissatisfaction in life from is feeling like maybe they haven't, found that self-actualization, right. you know what I mean? Yep. They, they haven't found what makes them feel content, you right. know, or makes yep. them feel yeah. like they have a purpose. And I think that could circle us back to the, the puritanical, cultural kind of like, you know, you're not supposed to self-actualize. You're supposed to always be busy and working yeah. and subservient and, right. and, you know, you're always supposed to have a boss and you're always supposed to be trying to make your boss happy and you're always, right? And I think culturally we frown on it, mm-hmm. right? Like, we frown on that. And, um, you know, I, I, we could get into a big, like, I don't, I don't, uh, things can get very complicated very easily, but I, I do think that in a, in a lot of ways, let me be very clear and say, I'm a big, like, I absolutely believe in capitalism. A hundred percent think it's the best system on the planet, financial system on the planet. I think free market is better than a controlled market. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That doesn't mean it's without, not without its flaws, sure. not without its shortcomings, right? In my opinion, capitalism does more harm than good, for example, in medicine. Sure. Right? I'm not saying socialized medicine is the answer. I'm just saying there's a problem and I yeah. don't know what there's, the is. There's a competition that maybe you wouldn't have elsewhere. Well, elsewhere. well and you end up with like jacked up prices and yeah. things and people, right. you know, we have a, a situation in the world now where people are decide, like rationing out their insulin so they can afford their rent. Right. Right. And so to me, that's problematic. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that some of like a, a free market capitalist system depends on selling you this image of what happiness looks like. And it includes things like a Rolex and a Ferrari. And yeah. a, right. And for people who can afford those things. Right. I know you had Aaron on Professor Aaron. Mm-hmm. He's wealthy. He can yeah. afford those things. And I'm glad it's great that he enjoys them. But we sell people this idea of what happiness looks like. Right. And it's usually through consumer goods. goods, right? Yes. And so you end up, even when you achieve those goods, a lot of people are still unhappy because now they're empty. in debt. Yeah. It's empty and they yeah. have debt for it, right? right. So to me, I, th- I think that self actualization piece, again, 
We have to do the work on ourselves where we can see the social narrative and say, I choose to reject it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's okay if people judge me for that. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to ask one more question, then we'll wrap up. All and, right, cool. and I'm kicking myself because I didn't ask this on our last <laughs> interview, but John wasn't here. This is like normally the question he asks. And I, I felt so dumb afterwards because this is the mentor podcast. Right. I didn't even ask this the last interview, but yeah. who are some of your mentors in life mm. and what were some of the lessons they taught you? Man. So, um, I've had a, a handful throughout my life. I've been lucky that way. Um, the ones that jump out at me, <clears throat> um, so I told you I had this jujitsu and martial arts instructor who was pretty ph- philosophical. His name was Randy, is Randy, he's still, still around. Um, and he was a big mentor for me in a lot of ways. And I just loved the way he would teach me crazy jujitsu lessons, you know. Um, you know, after tapping me a thousand times with the same technique, and I get very frustrated because no matter what I did, I couldn't stop it. We were having a water break, drinking some water one day, and he had this big old plastic cup of water, and he dumped it on me, and he was like, here, man, block this water. And I was standing there soaking wet, and he's like, why didn't you block the water? I said, okay, I get it. You can't block water. And he said, okay, how could you have not gotten wet? And instantly I knew the answer, right? If I wasn't there... I wouldn't have gotten wet. And so I realized just through that interaction that the mistake I was making when we were rolling is I was allowing him to get into the same position and then trying to beat the arm bar or whatever it was, when really the answer was to not be there in the first place, Mm -hmm. right? And so he had this way of teaching like that that just made a lot of sense to me, and I loved learning that way. And it was super non-traditional, but it was very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a professor in my master's degree, Dr. Mark Kiselica, who um, introduced me to the study of uh, the psychology of men and masculinity, which at that time in my life was, it's still very important to me. But at that time, you know, um, I told you I grew up in a household where there was a lot of violence, um, a lot of what I would call toxicity. my fam- people in my family loved each other and you know we uh, we do still love each other but there was a lot of you know I, I came into adulthood feeling like I didn't want to be like the men I had observed a lot in my life but not mm-hmm. knowing how I did want to be because mm-hmm. I also value a lot of things about masculinity I value strength I value um, the protector instinct. I value the family man who sacrifices, right? Mm -hmm. And he really helped me academically, but what he didn't realize, I think, is all that academic help was helping me become a better person. I Mm -hmm. wouldn't wouldn't say I'm still... I wouldn't say that I'm the guy I really want to be yet, but he got me a lot closer. Mm -hmm. So he was one. Um, Then uh, Dr. Jared Schurz, when I was... uh, on my um, internship for my master's degree, I was he was my supervisor. And he's like a wizard, man, when it comes to psychology and mental health. Mm-hmm. And he taught me things that just, you know, he asked me once about a session. I had done a session and he asked me how it went. And I had I was having this reaction to this client. I found him objectionable in some way. And I don't even remember the client anymore. But I said to Jared you know, maybe it's my issue, but he went, of course it's your issue. <laughs> I didn't even get the sentence out, right? Yeah. But it was, 
it was so clear. It was like, yes, right. Every reaction is mine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mine to manage. That's right. You know, it's never about the other person. So I grew a lot from that. I, I've been lucky in a lot of ways. I could list 30 or 40 people at Prime who, who I would say have been mentors to me in one way or another. Um, you know, I don't even know his last name. Do you know Billy? Purple yeah. Belt goes in the yeah. morning. What an amazing yeah, he's human such being. such a nice guy. What an, well, he's but, on our list of people to get on the podcast. He's amazing so, human being. His positivity is so infectious. Infectious, but not Pollyanna, no. right? It's not like rainbows and unicorns. No, no. It's just legit. Like I get the feeling, and I don't know his life story at all, but I get the feeling from Billy that like whatever, all that happiness that he has, he had to earn. Yeah. Right? He worked for yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, I get that from Butch. Mm-hmm. Butch is another one. Yep. Jay Rakes. Mm-hmm. I would consider a mentor. Yeah. Um, there's a billion people I look up to. Mm-hmm. I would put you on the list. I would put Herrera on that list. I would put um, Tim and Ali on yeah, that list, right? Sure. There's just a lot of good human beings mm-hmm. there. Um, well, that's like our whole pool of people we've pulled from, which yeah. is incredible. You yeah. know, it's a jujitsu gym, but there's just so many yeah. great people from yeah. different walks of life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and then there's some folks that, you know, I feel... I get mentored from in my, you know, my Baca world, mm-hmm. um, just helping kids who have suffered from abuse. And right. So, right. Um, so I, I really think, you know, there, there's a great saying, uh, that's, and I don't know who said it, but it's, you know, if you're paying attention, everything is a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I like I, that. Yeah. That's good. So that's good. I like to take that approach when yeah. I remember. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Um, okay. So, uh, before we, actually wrap up you obviously have a lot of endeavors right now oh, endeavors that you know can really help some people so why don't you talk about your podcast your facebook page sure. kind of what you've been doing in the last couple of years so that people can yeah. get plugged in if they're interested thanks so yeah so um i stopped working as a psychologist back in june because we had a family situation and my kids just needed me around more mm-hmm. they were on summer break mm-hmm. so i stopped working to be around for them there's no decision in my mind there. It's, they need me, I'm there. Mm-hmm. Um, as the life was starting to return to normal and I was going to start looking for work again, they asked me not to. They don't, when I'm working, um, I have shared custody of my kids. I have them every other week because mm-hmm. I'm divorced. Um, but uh, when I'm working, I typically need a nanny to help get them to school and get mm-hmm. them home, and they didn't want another nanny. Mm-hmm. So I agreed to not go back to full time work. So I had this thing of like, well, what am I going to do to make a little income? Mm-hmm. And I, for me, work needs to be meaningful, mm-hmm. right? I can't just do something mindless. Right. So I decided to open a coaching practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sort of specialize in helping people who are recovering from adversity. Uh, but between my experience in the military, my you know, being a certified personal trainer, I'm also getting a certification as a financial coach. Mm. So I sort of do holistic kind of coaching for people. I do um, executive coaching, mindset coaching with Mm. athletes and such, um, financial coaching and fitness coaching. Mm. Uh, And uh, so I started doing that because I can make my own schedule and be available for the for the boys. Um, Over the summer, they were home on summer break, so I didn't have a lot of time to work on it. So I created a podcast Mm -hmm. called The Growth and Thriving Podcast. 
uh, where we talk about all that kind of stuff, how people recover from adversity and how you get back on your feet and work toward that post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is available on YouTube, on Apple, on Spotify, and on Google. And it's the Growth and Thriving Podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the uh, for the coaching practice, I'm working on a website, so it's not up yet. Um, it's coming along more slowly than I'd like, but I'm working on it. I do have um, three Facebook communities uh, for the, that people can join where I share content free of charge. The podcast is also free of charge. Um, and so there's a Facebook page for Growth and Thriving LLC with an ambersand, Growth and Thriving LLC. Um, and attached to the page are three sort of communities. One is called Growth and Thriving After Trauma. One is called Thriving Fathers Parenting After Mm -hmm. Trauma. And one is called Leadership Skills for Survivors. And people can go and join any of those. Feel free to post, to comment, to their meant to be open form type of communities. Mm -hmm. Anytime, every once in a while, somebody will post like a, you know, an advertising phishing sort of thing. I just go in and delete it. But anything else you want to post, I leave. You know, people are free to say what they want on there. Um, and then last but not least, I started a blog. And the blog is so... I like what, what it's called. Thank you. you. Tell so me what it's called. I will get there. So, <laughs> so the, the podcast is a little bit more serious mm-hmm. in nature. Yeah. Um, the blog is sort of the same subject matter about how do we pull our lives together? How do we grow? How do we learn? But I use my life and the things I've screwed up as an example in the podcast, in the blog rather, and the blog is much more humorous and funny. It's called What the Fuck Am I Doing? Yeah. <laughs> and the website is www.whatthefkamidoing.com. Yep. And uh, if you're averse to foul language, don't read the blog. Yeah, right. I swear a lot. Yeah. But I try to be pretty honest and I try to be pretty funny. And I try to use my life as an example by which people can hopefully... Uh, learn things. And, and that's also an area where I encourage people to comment and have open discussion and mm-hmm. um, take what you can, leave comments and uh, get to know each other. So right. that's those are the things I'm, I'm doing awesome. at the moment. Yeah, you're a busy man. Yeah. I'm also actually going to Pikes Peak Community College. I'm studying culinary arts. Oh, really? Yeah, that's because awesome. so the coaching practice is getting going, but it's it takes a little time to yeah. build a business. Uh, and so I have a GI Bill from the military. Right. And so I, I get paid a few thousand dollars to go to school. Right. And so I've always wanted, I'm a, I'm a pretty good cook, but I've wanted to learn really how to cook. Yeah. Yeah, So I'm in the culinary arts program there. So awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciated having you. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you, John. No problem. Thank you all for listening to the mentor podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, be sure to follow us on Facebook at Mentor Podcast and on Instagram at Mentor Podcast CO.